0: Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So let me just welcome you. It's been uh, quite a week, and we will be launching into a public health update, and then we're going to meander through... The physiology of menopause, the neurophysiology, some interesting stories about a different cause for dementia. Let's start with a public health update. Uh, First of all, uh, once a month, it used to be once a week, the public health department in Santa Cruz hosts a very informative uh, 45 minute uh, show. It's a Zoom in the mornings on Tuesday and They bring us up to date on what's going on, what's hot in public health uh, circles, and get some health alerts, things like that. It's useful and interesting, and I really want to put a shout out to them. This was the sort of farewell swan song for Dr. Gail Newell, uh, who became public health officer in 2019 and got an unexpected bonus in 2020. Uh, She did uh, fabulous work, and we're all very proud of the way she guided Santa Cruz County through a labyrinthine uh, process with lots of minotaurs lurking here and there uh, to get us to this wonderful level that we've achieved. Now we have three wastewater uh, assessment plants. All the wastewater in the county is uh, assessed for viruses, including COVID. I'll be happy to report that the latest wastewater levels are quite low. Hospitalizations, likewise, are quite low at two uh, at the uh, two per week, and most many of those patients are hospitalized with COVID, not by, of COVID. Uh, Santa Cruz County has some of the highest. COVID vaccination levels in the state of California. That's really something for us to be proud of. And uh, statewide, the test positivity rate is about 4.7 uh, positive per test, which uh, I want to remind you that these are the uh, these are the laboratory tests, and so a lot of people aren't getting their laboratory tests if they have a positive uh, screening test. They're just going on and uh, lying low and getting the Paxlovid on the basis of their positive screening. I'll just say that I find that the Paxlovid very helpful. It's widely available, and it is uh, really helpful for mitigating what is otherwise, yes, a nasty flu. Though well, that's great if you're vaccinated and you get a nasty flu, but hey, nobody likes a nasty flu either. We, uh, sad to say, but we've had our first Xylazine death in on the fifth of uh, July in town, and this was a person who uh, overdosed on an adulterant that is uh, a type of tranquilizer that's being added along with <laughs> uh, along with the fentanyl. We now have to worry about xylazine, and they're showing up in street drugs. The problem with xylazine is it's not an opiate, and therefore you can't reverse it. With Narcan, and uh, there are there is a test strip for it that you can buy, like the Narcan, like the uh, test strips for opiates and for fentanyl. Uh, it's expensive. Uh, there's a lab. Te- there's a lab that can do a urine test, but the ER and the hospitals do not have this lab test at this point. And the reason this is so dangerous is that. Opiates, in general, are respiratory system depressants. They slow down your breathing. This tranquilizer, uh, xylazine, also slows down your breathing. And uh, so there's no way to reverse the respiratory depression that it's causing. Uh, The other thing about it that is kind of scary is that when people are using it regularly, they get a rebound syndrome when they stop using it. And the rebound syndrome is very much like what we see with certain blood pressure medicines. Caterpress or clonidine is the one that comes to mind. This is now this is available in patches. Many people are using clonidine patches. It's also available orally, but we rarely use it because it's dangerous. If you forget your dose of an oral agent, uh this particular oral agent within about eight hours you your blood pressure will surge to like 250 over 110 and that of course can co- can blow a leak in your uh, pipes and lead to a stroke so we uh really st- would struggle with a withdrawal like that and we'd be having to give the person very you know while meanwhile they're having drug seizures because this does also cause an overdose seizures and trying to get an IV into a person who's having a seizure and manage the high blood pressure through IV medications while they're having a seizure is nothing short of nerve-wracking. And wow, just something that we are uh, a very unwelcome guest in our community, I guess would be the way I would put it. Xylazine, by the way, if you want to look it up, is spelled X-Y-L-A-Z-I-N-E. And that agent is if you go to Santa Cruz uh, Health dot org, you will find uh information about it, everything I've said, plus much more. But if you do have friends or uh who are using this or if you yourself have a habit, the street drugs right now are uh a mess, let's just put it that way, and you don't know what you're getting. So please get some Narcan. Please, uh, if you have people in the household, please let them know where it is and ask them to check on you when you use Honest. I know that maybe you can't out yourself that way, but this is very dangerous and it's not going to go away. Well, I see we have a call coming in. We're going to try picking that up. Hello, uh, you're on the air. This is uh, Dr. Matika. Who are you and wh- who are, where are you calling from?
1: Hi, my name is Seville. I'm calling from Soquel. Well,
0: hello, Seville. What can I do for you today?
1: Hi. Well, thank you so much for everything you do every week for us. But I have a follow-up question about oral hygiene, because um, you mentioned that we shouldn't use hydrogen peroxide, that it kind of kills all good and bad. But in a show, maybe two years ago, you actually suggested to use hydrogen peroxide to clean the gum line, to do sort of like a scaling Mm -hmm. with hydrogen peroxide to prevent Alzheimer's. So I understand that science changes and that things change, you know, the suggestions. And um, because my my functional medicine dentist actually some years back suggested to me to use hydrogen peroxide with baking soda to clean uh, the gums, Mm -hmm. the gum line. And uh, a gentleman in one of the, the last show about oral hygiene, he called in talking about this food grade hydrogen peroxide. Which then you uh, ask, well, what does that even mean? So did we all just pay way too much for a food grade hydrogen peroxide uh, that we shouldn't use at all? And um, because they claim that it's less toxic than the hydrogen peroxide in the brown bottle. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, hydrogen peroxide itself is pretty toxic. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's an oxidant. And so it generates free oxygen radicals and that's how it kills bacteria. So you have to, so I have a lot of patients who clean out their wounds with Mm -hmm. hydrogen peroxide. And I, I don't approve of, of using that in wounds. I would recommend soap, uh, which is much gentler. And soap and water, and then don 't do just use water to clean uh, out your wounds between dressing changes if you 're using antibiotic wounds. Now, we have learned a lot in the last two or three years about the microbiome with these tests mm-hmm. that have yeah. evolved and the te- and what 's been worked on on the tests and i 'm actually seeing and using right now because I picked up some samples last month a uh, a toothpaste that is specifically designed for maintaining a healthy microbiome. And it's, it's very different from other toothpastes I've used. Mm-hmm. But it's, suppo- it, it's supposed to actually promote the growth of the protective bacteria. And I think it contains some of those protective bacteria in it. And the idea is to set up a healthy microbiome and then acts as a kind of ground cover. For the pathogens, I also learned, and I think it was about three, four weeks ago, where we did a long, a deep dive into tooth physiology and the the space between the gum and the teeth, and how it's a bit like uh, like ocean. You know, we have this lovely Monterey Trench out uh, out in the bay, and very deep, there's very little oxygen, very little light. You get very different organisms than you get, let's say, in the first twenty feet of the ocean. Uh, from the surface where you have lots of light and lots of oxygen and therefore really different organisms. And as you go deeper, first of all, you shouldn't have deep pockets. And if you do have deep pockets uh, between your gum and your teeth, what's living down there is really pro-inflammatory. And there's actually certain ones that have been now specifically identified as being the causative factors in Alzheimer's. Three years ago, we didn't have any of these organisms identified specifically. The associational studies hadn't come out. And so we were doing a kind of take-no-prisoners approach. Now, when you use that peroxide, you are killing the bad bacteria, but you are also being a little indiscriminate, and you're killing the good bacteria. So if the idea, I'm thinking that as this field advances... Uh, we're going to move into using probiotics uh, in the mouth, and the other thing that came out of that uh, hygiene thing was that if you're going to use that perox- hydrogen peroxide, uh, you might want to also consider doing oil pulling because that will, if you follow up the hydrogen peroxide with the oil pulling, you're going to you're going to mitigate all the free radicals you just generated, and so you probably won't have as broad a kill. But I I really think that keeping the area clean is important. But I think there's such a thing as too clean, and we've learned that with allergies, right? And the immune system. If the house is a little bit dirty, that's actually better for the kid. So, yeah. so uh, all things in moderation. And I I I am I have no opinion on the food grade versus the stuff in the brown bottle. Uh, I don't uh, I really don't know what food grade means. I still don't. I I mm. did you look it up by any chance? I'm curious, Sybil. No, I'm sorry. I didn't. No, that's all right. I mean, I was like, okay, well, uh, things to do, places to go, people to see. <laughs> Probably yeah, not well, do that. I-
1: I asked people at the health food store, people who are selling the the food grade, and, and they told me that it's less toxic. But you know, I probably should should have looked it up. But then there's also conflicting information on, online. But can you tell me what what the? Because I found a toothpaste too, but I also don't have it right here. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell tell the name of that tooth toothpaste?
0: Uh you know, I I it's on the tip of my tongue, but let's sorry, that's a pun. Um how yeah, about this? Uh send me an email to askdrdawn.com. dot com. Just say contact us and say probiotic toothpaste and I will send it to you. Because I don't actually okay. I d I don't actually uh know the name. Okay, that'd it, be great.
1: Can it's I something it's like
0: it's like dentisidin, I think, but I think. I'm not sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, thank you. And can I ask a quick sure, question? Sure, because sure, I, I actually emailed this to you a while back, about a month ago or so, or two months, and I never heard anything that you mentioned it, and I couldn't find it in the archives. It's about radiation from these machines, at the say, security machines at the airport. Because I usually opt out, and we are allowed to do that. We, we can opt out, mm-hmm. and then they pat you down and um, it's kind of a hassle, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. Are we, is this necessary, or how much radiation are we getting? I mean, I'm not flying a whole lot, but I'm just, <laughs> I just don't like these machines. I know,
0: it's creepy, it's creepy. But, you know, the radiation that, when you get an x-ray, for example, that's much, much higher energy. Than the, ra- mm-hmm. than, than the radiation they're using to, you know, check and see if you have any metal on your body. Or, and that's basically what it, mm-hmm. it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of a metal detector. I think it also maybe detects, you know, the shape in such a way that they can know that it's probably just your bra, <laughs> you know, your underwire or something. But I noticed they still wand you if, you if you go through and test positive. It's a really trivial amount of radiation. It's like day on the beach mm-hmm. level. So you know, mm-hmm. you you spend a day on the beach, you get some radiation. You, uh it's it's at that level. It's not like the. It's not like even flying. Like when you fly to New York City, you're getting a chest X-ray worth of radiation. Yeah. Oh, oh okay. really? Okay. Yeah, but the chest X. But the chest X-ray, we're going we're going through all that flesh, right? To, we're looking at your bones, and maybe if we're look, you know, we're looking at your. We can see your bones. We can see your lungs, but we're going in like you know. Five or you know, 12 inches through you. And, uh, and that's if you're thin. Whereas they're just bouncing off your skin. I mean, they're not going mm-hmm. in. And it's really, it doesn't take that much energy to penetrate clothing. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's, so, it's very low level. So do not worry ow. about that. I w- honestly, I would worry more about having somebody pat me down wearing the same gloves that they've just used to pat down like 16 other people in front of me. Certainly I do. I think they use new gloves. I, I them, uh, yeah. you can ask them to change their gloves, but i don't think they do it every time i have i've been paranoid about the uh the glove thing uh and having mm. them go through my bags with i they you can now ask them to change your gloves but in mm-hmm. the in the nine one one era uh you know in the i've been traveling a lot uh, for, for the last twenty years and mm-hmm. it's yeah yeah those gloves have seen a lot of action before they get to you <laughs> okay
1: quick, but uh, i have you about the radiation. Uh, what you, uh, dental x-rays, are they, you know, I don't, I'm not asking for dental x-rays. I'm, I'm refusing them every year. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking the, about every three or four years. So far, so good. <laughs> and uh, Well, and you're taking us, you're,
0: you're ta- okay, so mammograms, let me come back to that, but the dental x-rays, uh, what I try to do is I try to pull the the, the Thing they put on up past my past my thyroid gland. I, I really, yes, yes, you know, I'm like, absolutely. don't irradiate my thyroid. Mm-hmm. You really don't need to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's you know, it's a fairly focused beam of radiation, and they're trying not to hit your brain and not to hit your thyroid. And I've it, there's a there's a trade-off because if you end up with you end up missing decay deep, or you end up missing missing a root abscess. And that yeah. stuff is just sitting down there festering. Uh, so there's a risk, there's a benefit to skipping the x-rays, but there's also a risk to skipping the x-rays because something, you know, every three years, yeah. three years is plenty of time for something to really get rolling. And you could mm-hmm. lose the tooth or you could end up with, you know, a large area that had to actually be surgically debrided. And meanwhile, it's releasing all of this garbage into your into your circulation that's toxic. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I... I've, you know, it's that risk benefit thing. Really, mm-hmm. really um, right. difficult for me to. Uh, it's really difficult for me to decide, and, and you know nobody's done a head to head. And how uh,
1: ma- mammogram probably the same thing. Should, well,
0: should mammograms be- actually is have more have a st- stronger radiation than a chest X ray, which kind of bothers me. I oh, s- I know. I still do it because the statistics support doing it. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, st- the the more mammograms we've done, the longer your the the lower the death rate from breast cancer has been because the breast cancers are being caught early. Now, are we ca- and and we can't prove we aren't causing some by that, but we aren't causing enough for it to show up statistically. I see. So okay. it's it's not a strong, it's not a big risk, and it's been looked for for thirty years, and so. I ended up kind of making my peace with the mammograms, even though I still get creeped out every time they every time I do one. So yeah. I think you, I I do it every year, you know, without fail. And mm-hmm. I would rather find my breast cancer early. And uh, I've seen such suffering from that disease in people who uh, were so afraid of radiation that they, you know, they wouldn't get treated or they wouldn't get they didn't find the disease even. You know. It, anyway, I don't want to blame anybody because, you know, when fear, you know, we yeah. act out of fear, it backfires. Mm-hmm. That's that's all I yeah. can say. Oh, I do. My mm-hmm. producer just shot me something here. Food grade hydrogen peroxide is used in the production of many oral hygiene products. This grade of peroxide has strong bleaching qualities. In its, in addition to its ability to kill mm-hmm. germs and bacteria, so mm-hmm. I think its food grade is probably actually stronger. Than the watered down stuff in mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, in the in the brown bottle. So it, okay. it might actually be the opposite of healthier. Well, I guess. It, well, it <laughs> yeah. kills all those bad bacteria. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. The, all right. Well, thank you so yeah, much th- for the call.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Doctor Don. Really appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, you be you. You take care and be safe, huh?
1: Yes. Thank you. Thank
0: all you so much. All right. Bye bye. Everybody who has a young child wants to go and get a pet right now. (laughs) If uh, pets do stave off food allergy, in recent research coming out of Japan, found that kids who were exposed to cats or indoor dogs during fetal development, so while mom's pregnant, so don't change the kitty box, mom, but have a kitty, I guess, is the moral there. Uh, Anyway, early infancy also worked, but... We're talking about a 13 to 15 percent lower risk of food allergies uh, compared to those living in pet free homes. And given that food allergies are becoming a very big issue in school children and has been for the last 15 years, uh, it's uh, a good idea. Now, this was interesting. Different pets appeared to offer different protections. Uh children exposed to cats were less likely to become allergic to eggs, wheat, and soybean. Uh, those who lived with, with dogs, it was eggs, milk, and nuts. And uh, it's probably the pet exposure strengthens the the infant's microbiome, but the fact that the anim- it's animal specific in terms of the type of food sensitivities that you're preventing is highly intriguing. To me, and I look forward to seeing more research on that particular topic. So now we're going to move into the issues of menopause for a little while. We're going to talk about menopause and the brain. There's a colloquial some, something we call menobrain, or uh, and this is kind of a brain fog. Particularly, women are very verbal, very. Uh, able to generate unending streams of discourse. And one of the symptoms of menopause, or perimenopause actually, is problems with word finding. Not so much remembering the names of people, but more just finding the word that you were about to use in a sentence. It's very frustrating to people who have been good at that. And There's a lot of information. We're going to be talking first about the work of Naomi Rance, who's a neuropathologist at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And she began studying menopause in the brain way back in the 90s. And very few other people were in this field. And she began, she figured out a way to study menopause in rats by tracking tiny temperature fluctuations in their tails as a measure of hot flushes. And, uh, so the reason this is important or being talked about here is this new drug called Fesolinitant was just approved by the FDA. Uh, and it was a, it's a drug that is a non hormonal therapy to treat, uh, hot flushes and this is uh, really very specifically related to Dr. Rance and others' uh, fundamental work looking at the brain as being what's in charge of menopause, not the ovary. We now know, for example, that menopauses that most of the menopausal symptoms take place because of changes in the hypothalamus more than changes in the ovary. So, we usually talk about menopause as okay, you haven't had your period for twelve months; you're in, you're, you've gone through menopause. But really, menopause is about a decade-long process, and it doesn't happen overnight. A lot of times, it's a stop and start, stop and start, with erratic uh, production of these hormones like estrogen and progesterone, and it's uh, it's this erratic nature, the ovary kind of failing to send consistent signals back to the brain that probably creates the symptoms now the brain relies on estrogen signaling and when that signaling goes offline it uh, has a lot of impact estrogen for example stimulates glucose uptake and energy production in the brain and so you can have these terrible crashes where your brain is literally starved of energy one week And then the following week, the uh, ovary finally starts responding to the FSH and you get a surge in the estrogen and your breasts get tender and it's very much a roller coaster. The brain cells do not like to be uncoordinated. They do not like fluctuations like that. And hot flushes are one one of the symptoms. We also see high blood pressure. We've talked about how the brain becomes foggy through lack of concentration. And this often happens before when a woman is still having regular periods. So as a doctor, unless you're an expert in hormonal uh, balancing, there's a tendency to just dismiss this as stress, overwork, anxiety, all of which women in the 45 to 55-year-old age group largely have, but that's not why they have these symptoms. One of the reasons that this research has not gone very far is because of funding issues, but that has finally changed as these new drugs are now uh, coming online, and we're going to start to see competition in this area. And probably a whole bunch of new drugs are going to come out. I'm not going to re uh, to discuss the uh, estrogen women's health uh, initiative. Except to say that it was deeply flawed, because it didn't test women who were perimenopausal because their hot flashes would have interfered with the blinding. so it's kind of like that joke about you know where did you lose your glass? Where did you lose your contact lens? Well, over here, but I'm looking under the the lamppost got the lights better here if you're going to if you're going to look at the effects of estrogen on menopause, you should probably do that in pre in perimenopausal women whose bodies are changing rather than in women whose bodies changed 10 years ago. Uh, Any differences that you, anything you succeed in doing is probably going to be really different. Uh, We have a caller coming in. Uh, Hello, welcome. This is Dr. Dawn, and you're on the air. What's your name, and uh, what are um, you wanting to ask?
2: Hello, Dr. Dawn. Thank you for taking my call, and I very much appreciate your program. You do a wonderful service. My name is Ava, and um, I am 59 years old. I started menopause in 2020, and um, I am also of Pima descent, Mm -hmm. and uh, we've had a lot of family history of uh, diabetes and uh, kidney failure resulting um, from that, and I have had kidney disease when I was young when I was two years old. My question now is, um, my A1C has been steadily going up. Um, in 2021, it was 5.3. In 22, it was 5.6. In 23, it's now 5.8. Mm-hmm. Uh, my doctor's going to retest me in 90 days. Um, my diet is protein, fish and chicken, greens, grains, nut, fruit, some starch Um, I'm working to improve my diet for the test in 90 days. Um, I've reduced, I've quit sugar completely. Um, I was never a big sugar or carb eater in the first place because of my history. And I've always stayed in good shape and I'm not overweight, maybe by three pounds, Mm -hmm. three to five pounds. So my question to you is... um, Over-the-counter supplements, Um, I just ordered the Jaro Formula Glucose Optimizer, and I'm wondering what your take is on a supplement just for a little help or alpha-lipoic acid. In the meantime, I believe I should up my um, cardio and weight training. Uh, I used to do Pilates twice a week um, and walk almost daily, at least three to four miles a day since... Uh, the last three years, I haven't been in a studio, um, so I just started doing weight training at home.
0: All right, good. And I'm going to up the cardio. Good. So, okay, so let me start with saying that the weight training—that we'll get to that part first before we do supplements. The weight training is really key. Mm-hmm. Okay, because you need the more muscle you've got. The lower your insulin resistance will be, the more places the glucose will have to will have to go. Uh, Another thing that I would say is if you can time your if you can if you can exercise after your big meal. So, and that doesn't have to be vigorous exercise. It could be you finish you finish your if dinner is your big meal. And I'm just using that as an example. Uh, uh-huh. It would be better if lunch was your big meal. But whichever it is, if you can manage to exercise, even a 20-minute walk after you finish the meal, before you wash the dishes and clean up, it's just like, okay, we've eaten the meal. I'm now out for my digestive walk. And as you do okay. that digestive walk, you will actually uh, mitigate the rise of insulin because this is all about having a low insulin spike after eating. So. What is sugar? Why is sugar bad? Because it creates an insulin spike in people who are genetically predisposed, like the Pima Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. They they almost never uh, historically had any sugar, and so and and they were very much subsistence diet, and they served, they they were like the desert people. You know, they got by on very uh-huh. little, and so yeah. the minute there was excess of calories, the body was like slam that puppy into you know slam that into storage, grab that grab those calories. And so that insulin spike it just it wants to happen and you you have to fool it. So exercising after the meal, when the sugar starts to go up, you know, the glucose will start to rise, but it'll immediately get sucked into the muscle and it won't won't trigger a release of a spike that way. So, okay. you, so you and that's mm-hmm. just a matter of timing. So that's one. Mm-hmm. Uh there are other insulin sensitizers. ALA is one of them, so I do recommend mm-hmm. But if you can build more muscle, mm-hmm. that's really, yeah. really going to be beneficial. Now, I don't want you doing like serious super aerobics right after a meal because you want to digest your food. You don't want to redirect all of your blood to their muscles, but walking is perfect. You okay. know, A nice walk after the meal you're, it, rather than sitting is going to make a difference. Cinnamon in your coffee, try to get at least a quarter teaspoon of cinnamon a day. That's easy. In your coffee, okay. on your cereal, uh, you said I drink
2: tea. I don't uh, do coffee. Cinnamon tea, will, okay. I'll you I know, do cinnamon cinnamon tea. tea.
0: Yeah, uh, at least one cup. But you're trying to get a quarter uh, the equivalent. Mm-hmm. There's also cinnamon capsules you can get. Uh, so mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about couple. Uh, we're we're talking about a thousand, maybe two thousand milligrams of, of powdered cinnamon. That's not a lot. It's yeah. A quarter teaspoon. Okay. Uh, yeah. AL, ALA is also an insulin sensitizer and that one is uh, about 300 milligrams a day. It's a good insulin okay. sensitizer. Uh, alpha- uh, so omega-3 fatty acids, if you get about 2000 milligrams of those, that's a great in- that. the good. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's okay. a good insulin sensitizer. So, you know, you're 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 basically making reducing the insulin resistance, reducing the spike which is triggering the insulin resistance, and so you're you're fighting a rear guard action here. Uh, now you mentioned grains, and mm-hmm. so we talk about whole grain bread, for example, and that's a that's an oxymoron, like military intelligence, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know if it's a if it's a whole grain, it's not ground up, so it's not a flour. If it's been a, if the grain has been turned into a flour, it's no longer a whole grain. Mm-hmm. And so, if when we say you know when you say grains, are we talking about? I'm eating rice. Are we talking about I'm eating uh, kashi that's been fried? What what is it? What is the grain that you're eating?
2: Well, I was eating sourdough toast in the morning, and I stopped that Good. because I actually know better mm-hmm. that I shouldn't be having any bread or gluten. I know better, um, and I do occasionally eat rice. And we had switched eating. Uh, eat our pasta to a right a brown rice pasta, but I I kind of know better. Well, than to do that, so. I
0: you know it's it, you really have to consider how mm-hmm. exactly how good does that taste? You know, ex- because it there is there is a price for it, yeah. and if you're re- if you're really like pushing that that rock uphill, trying not to. Let it roll over you and you've got this trend line w- with doing what you've been doing. So you I would recommend making a really radical change for about six months mm-hmm. and then uh, get yourself uh, just spend the money, get a coupon uh, for, you know, eat the, the way that you think you can sustainably eat. In the, in the matter that we've, talked, you know what to do, but I mean, let's face it, we're mm-hmm. all human. So do what is sustainable for you and wear a glucose monitor. Uh, okay. you can, you can buy one for like $120, $120 will get you two of them. So they're probably about $68 for one. And mm-hmm. you you get a coupon online, like goodrx.com, get a coupon, okay. get the thing, slap it on there, get, download the phone app and monitor in, set up the, account with the company so that you get your data and monitor what happens 30, 60 and 90 minutes after you eat your food. Mm-hmm. You can so you can okay. do the same meal twice and take the walk once and don't take the walk the second time and see what happens and you can watch what your glucose level does. Mm-hmm. And ideally you never want your glucose level to go above 135. That's kind okay. of, that's kind of your goal. And okay. and if you if you go to 170 that's fine, but you will have triggered a little bit of an insulin spike if you do that. Okay. But it's not just how high does it get, it's also how fast does it get there. So if it gets mm-hmm. to 170 in the first half hour, that's going to be a bigger spike because the it you know how when you're driving and someone speeds up, you're not you're not okay. driving and someone speeds up or slows down, you feel the acceleration and the deceleration. Yes. Yeah. So you've got the speedometer and the hypothalamus has both a, a speedometer and an accelerometer, so it feels the acceleration of that glucose, the delta, how fast is it changing, and it, it like multiplies how much insulin it's going to put out for that number. Mm-hmm. And, and then you put the insulin out, and then the number drops rapidly, but that spike just induced insulin resistance, which you were predisposed to genetically. So you, yes. you can't, you have to stop feeding the cycle, be really good, wear a halo for about six months. And what will happen mm-hmm. is that your receptors will reset and you will go back okay. to uh, a less aggressive, to needing to be less aggressive. And then you can just, you know, go back and say, okay, well, I'd really like to be eating pasta once a, once a week. I'd really like to be having you know, one piece of sourdough toast in the morning. So I'll buy another glucose monitor now that I've resensitized myself, and I'll see if I can stay below that 130 mark.
2: Okay, that sounds great, yeah. And also my LDL, I noticed, has gone up. It went from 90 to 124 over the last couple years. Mm -hmm. And I suspect if I do this, that will probably also go down.
0: It probably will. Um, I'm sorry, you said you were... uh, 59, 58, if I'm remembering correctly.
2: 59, correct. 59,
0: yeah. Yeah. So you're also right where I was talking about with the menopause, you're also really mm-hmm. at that place where you're, it's just gone. The estrogen's just gone. And one some people, that affects their liver, and they start making mm-hmm. more LDL. Mm, so okay. that happened to me, and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. crap. You know, I used to have an LDL that was really low, and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. damn. But it's all big particles, so i don't i don't sweat it too much, but nevertheless you know it's like when you know you're a recovering medical student and the paper comes back with a C on it you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it's not it, it has um, let's say disproportionate emotional valence for one all right well, I hope <laughs> I've helped you and uh, good luck i'm so I'm proud of you for uh, confronting this and and not being fatalistic about it and uh, there's a lot of benefit to that uh, that genetics. I mean, you you know, you're framing it as oh God, it's you know, I'm a Pima Indian, mm-hmm. but you're the person who's going to survive the food shortage. You're the person who's going to survive, you know, a really serious illness where you don't get fed for a week in the ICU. So, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a superpower in some contexts. All. You know, there's no such thing as a bad gene. If it's persist if it's not a mutation, it's persisted in the species because it confers benefit. It, it's all situational, right?
2: Yes. So well thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And um I, I really appreciate you taking the time and these are some really good um this is some really good advice and I will um I will get the glucose monitor. I think that's a great, great
0: idea. It's a wonderful educational tool because everybody's a little different, microbiome and all of that.
2: All right. Oh, yeah. Our biochemistry
0: is all individual.
2: Indeed. Thank you very
0: much. Bye-bye. Our next topic is about a newly discovered or I should say postulated cause of dementia. And we're going to be talking about very groundbreaking Work coming out of Cedar Sinai, uh, suggesting that there is a subgroup of people with frontotemporal dementia, a, t- a variant called behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, uh, and this typical type of dementia is associated with the accumulation of a protein called alpha synuclein in certain parts of the frontal lobes and the temporal lobes hence the name it sort of affects behavior and it also is associated with halluc- with visual hallucinations and so it's an alzheimer like dementia in that it, it memory is impacted but it's very different because it affects people's uh, existence in a different way. Obviously, if you're hallucinating, that's really different than not being able to remember where you put your keys or where, or how to put your socks on. Not that either of those is great. Uh, but maybe this behavioral variant frontotempo dimension is actually caused by something very different. It just has been classified in the same box. Behavioral frontotemporal patients have really severe behavior changes and personality changes. Sometimes they have to be uh, chemically sedated. Sometimes they end up arrested. And recent studies showed that many of these people may actually have a leak in their of uh, their cerebral spinal fluid. Most of you are probably familiar with CSF leak from. A, a quote-unquote spinal headache occurring after a person receives spinal or epidural uh, anesthesia. In this case, when when I get a blood draw, I'm, I'm sure you've had the experience of getting your blood draw drawn and having no bleeding, no bruise, or have getting your blood drawn from your arm and having you know a quarter size bruise at the site of the blood draw. What What it depends on whether the hole closed up right away. If the Vein kept squirting blood into the surrounding tissue. You'll have a bruise. If the hole closed right up, kind of did a little flap thing and clotted off, well, you won't have any bleeding at all. And when you poke a hole in the C in the spinal column in the CSF to pull that fluid out and analyze it, or p- put some fluid in to and create an anesthesia effect, you make that hole. Mostly, the hole closes right back up. Every now and then, it leaks. And that leak literally deflates this whole thing. The CSF is being produced up in the brain and it's inflating everything from the spine, from the base of the spine all the way up. And the brain is kind of floating on this fluid. The brain is not sitting on the skull at the, on the floor of the skull. The brain is actually floating above it on a fluid buffer. And if you put a leak, the brain settles, it touches the, uh, it literally touches the skull, and it aches. The it, it essentially stretch the stretch receptors fire off in the meninges, and it's like a meningitis headache. It also can cause dementia s- symptoms, and so there's a uh, researcher. Let's see, his name is Wouter Schievink, and he's the director of the CSF leak and microvascular neurosurgery program and a professor of neurosurgery at Cedars-Sinai. Very famous guy, very active tweeter. I actually follow him on Twitter. Uh, he posts a lot of interesting articles, many of them his own, but, you know, that's okay. You know, when you're doing this kind of work, you, I, I can forgive you for some arrogance. Uh, if, you have a, if you have CSF fluid leakage, you will often have a headache that improves when you lie down, and uh, that you will have if if you get that history from a patient who's showing signs of dementia, that's very very relevant. Uh, the flu. What's happening is that the fluid is leaking. It can leak through a hole that's been made or torn. You don't have to have a history of a spinal puncture. And people who have degenerative disc disease may leak from anywhere in the spinal Mm -hmm. column. It's not unusual to see them in the thoracic, the lumbar, or even the cervical area. Another thing that Scevic and his team have recently discovered is something called a CSF venous fistula. Uh, In this case, it's really hard to see these because ordinarily the way we look for a leak is we do a CT myelogram. In other words, instead of putting anesthesia in the spinal column, we put dye and then we do a CT and if there's leakage from out, outside, then we say, oh, there's a leak. But if the, the dye is going into the vein, it's going to wash away immediately and you aren't going to be able to find it very easily. There's maybe three places in the country that have the technique to actually identify a fistula. So they in the study that we're talking about, they used this specialized imaging uh, technique on 21 patients who had symptoms of this behavioral uh, variant frontotemporal dementia. And in out of the 21, they found CSF venous fistulas in nine of them. And they treated those patients with surgery, tied off these these connections, which shouldn't have been there in the first place. And their symptoms reversed. Their dementia reversed. And so... Even though this is a small percentage, it's really relevant that there's any dementia whatsoever that actually has a surgical, uh, a surgical fix. So only a, a less than half of the patients in this study uh, who were identified as having potentially having this kind of a leak or a fistula, did uh, get benefit. And so there's certainly more work to be done but this is the first anatomical defect dementia that's ever been identified, and it raises some real hope for people with atypical forms of this disease, or particularly if it's uh, coming early and accompanied by headaches. Uh, you may want to be looking up this research. I can certainly send you links. If you're interested, just, send, just go to askdrdon.com and hit the Contact Us and let's see so let's go on to something more global blood pressure so a recent study uh, this came out of australia and they looked at 28,000 people and discovered the uh, discovered or rather showed uh, evidence that uh, that just reducing blood pressure controlling uh, people's high blood pressure could Substantially reduce uh, dementia. If the study was very carefully done, uh, there were these were double-blind placebo studies that used different blood pressure lowering treatments and followed p- people until they developed dementia or didn't. They started out uh, at an age of sixty-nine and followed them for uh, ten five to ten years. And it, they could see that if they sustained the reduction of blood pressure in this population, there was a significant treatment effect in lowering the odds of developing dementia. And this was across the board. Frontal temporal dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, and vascular dementias all seemed to be reduced. And that's interesting. Now, of course, it was a very big study and done in multiple centers But assuming that there weren't any ginormous methodological flaws, I think it's really, uh, really interesting. I have an email on the subject of dementia, and I think this is the perfect one to talk to now. This is from Risa in Boulder Creek. And uh, Risa writes about Likimbi, the new Alzheimer's medication, uh, which is supposed to slow down cognitive decline. What do I think about it? It's $26,000 for year. year. Uh, is it is it worth it? And do you think the price will come down? Well, first of all, I would send you to listen to a longer segment I did back in January when the FDA uh, put out provisional approval of this over the advice of the review board. This is the first time the FDA has ever done that. Totally disregarded what the physician review board said and went ahead and approved the drug saying, well, we haven't got anything for dementia, so we're going to approve this. And... This is an anti, this drug basically is an antibody against uh, beta amyloid. And so it got approved because in the study that was done, they had people who had high levels of beta amyloid in their brain on testing, which we can now do with MRI. And so they said, we're going to give you this drug. And after six months, yep, the people who got the drug had lower levels of beta amyloid in their brain. It worked to reduce beta amyloid. The problem is that beta amyloid is a symptom, not a cause of Alzheimer's disease. It happens along with a lot of other things, including uh, neuronal degeneration, but it is not, it is not probably the cause. The cause of Alzheimer's, or at least the thing that correlates better with that, is a compound called tau protein. And tau protein uh, aggregates in the brain and the the tau count of an individual, like on MRI, if you look at what their uh, tau count is or their score, that has a much better uh, ability to identify uh, Alzheimer's disease. It's a much better correlate. And I'm happy to tell you that the that there's now a blood test for tau protein or a variant of tau protein and i think that's going to probably prove uh, to become a standard part of the workup when someone comes in and says they have memory loss because that would be that has a correlation with actually risk of developing alzheimers the brain amount of beta amyloid doesn't you know we developed these drugs by testing them on mice that we invented to have bad beta amyloid uh, and accumulated in the brain because that's what we thought was going wrong. I think we've been barking up the wrong tree for 20 years. I think this drug is a non-starter and I wouldn't recommend, I'd, I'd keep the year 20, $26,000 a year. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDon.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at ask dr dawn for now this is dr dawn saying so long and stay healthy
1: ask dr dawn is brought to you by jiva media production and editing by charles Bansky. music by john scoville